welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. To the Word of God this morning, as we have for generations in this ministry. I read from Hebrews chapter 11, our preaching text for today, verses 20 to 22. Let us hear the Word of God. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the eternal and changeless word of God. May it have its great impact on our hearts as as it is preached. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Well, I I mentioned in my prayer that we are uh, seeing increasingly chaotic times and we are facing an increasingly uncertain future. Don't think many people would disagree about that. As we uh, move back into this chapter, I think it's providential that the Spirit of God has led us to choose it to go through together because it is a passage of Scripture for uncertain times. Uncertain times create turmoil in our lives, and they often cause us to ask certain questions about our future and the future of those that we love. And maybe some questions have crossed your mind even this week. If you're a young single, perhaps, thinking about your whole future, you may be wondering about that, or maybe you're newly married. I find for people in that position, they think about their future hopes for a family. And, and it's not uncommon for this question to cross the mind of a young married or a young single. Should I really bring a child into a world like this or into a world that's changing like this? It's a, it's a natural question. And I'm sure many would confess, yeah, it's come across your mind. Or maybe you're an older person and you're closer toward the, the time of Isaac and Jacob here of passing. And you're looking not only back, but you're looking with trembling at the future because you're concerned about the ones that you'll leave behind. And maybe the question that's come across your mind this past week or in these days is, what's going to become of my loved ones when I'm gone? And I can no longer guide. I can no longer be present. I can no longer help provide, perhaps. What's going to happen to my loved ones when I'm gone? My spouse, my children, my grandchildren, if you've been so blessed. Now, these questions can cause unease in our hearts. But I'm going to tell you right now that part of the purpose of this text and the point of it is that as believers, we can face what may feel like future panic with God's forever promises. That's the power of the passage. So we're going to study three people who had their faith highlighted at their dying moment. Three individuals who all three faced the end of life. 
and they took three different stands to pass on the promises of God to their children and the generations after them. And so there's a lot to learn here about faith to face the future. So let's move into the passage together. I'm going to teach along two broad ideas or points today. The first is the primary perspective of these stories. You notice they're all gathered together in a flow of of wording and description. It's a single message that actually began with the text about Abraham that we ended, we finished our teaching on when we were in this chapter earlier, some weeks ago. It moves through a setting of four lives that we know as the, know as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. I'll explain what a patriarch is in a moment, but You've got a single message with four combined stories. We've already seen Abraham's. Now we're looking at the remaining three that are kind of joined here in in a death experience. So they're kind of set apart in the writer's mind. So let's see if we can understand the primary perspective of these stories. Open your Bibles, wherever you have them, digitally in print, or wherever you have them as you're viewing with us today. We're going to go through a number of scriptures. But our text is Hebrews 11, 20 to 22. What is the place of all of this in the flow of the book of Hebrews? We've been out for some weeks. I'll quickly review. Hebrews was written to a group of doubting Christians and other people who were thinking about committing to Christ, but weren't sure about making the faith step. All of the people reading this book were probably former Jews or current Jews. They were living in a time of increasing persecution against anyone who named the name of Jesus. And they were called in this book to see in the first nine to ten chapters how worthy Jesus is to be followed and believed in as the Messiah, as the Savior, and how worthy he is because of all that he's done in his cross work for us, how worthy he is to be suffered for. He brings his writing to a climax at the end of chapter 10. And in verse 38, he simply says, My righteous one shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38. The point of the whole sweeping 10 chapters is he's worthy of your faith. And if you believe in him, he will call you to live by faith and even suffer by faith. He's more than worthy and it's more than a worthy calling. He calls them to live by faith. And then he shifts his thought. And in chapter 11, he illustrates how others have lived by faith. He describes faith in verse 11, chapter 11, verse 1, as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of, not, of things not seen, which perfectly fits the three people we're going to study today. And then he illustrates it through a listing of people that since they were Jewish readers, they'd all be familiar with. These are all uh, people from the Old Testament history that they knew. And he goes through and establishes that, listen, If these people lived by faith in in similar uncertain and difficult times, you can do the same. And I call you to do the same. So these were people of faith. Follow their example. That's the whole theme of the chapter. He wants to remind them that the principle of believing God by faith isn't new. It's been around for generations. And so the 11th chapter proves it. Now, he talks about different men and women who were uh, exemplary in their faith, although not perfect. We started the chapter, you've already seen, we studied the story of Abel, who lived a life of the sacrifice of faith, you could say. Then we went on to Enoch, who lived a silent walk of faith, where his greatest ministry was just to walk with God in his private life. 
and in a, in a generation of total unbelief. Then we've seen the story of Noah, who had a public work of faith for, for decades, building the ark under the mockery of the whole culture. He lived a public life of faith, in contrast to Enoch's private walk. And then Abraham lived a long life of faith, Abraham and Sarah. So a woman of faith also in the description. They believed God for generations to keep his promise in their lives. He has an extended history. He's the first one to have an extended history of believing God. Now we come to these three, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And we see their faith crystallized as they faced death. Each of these are described in terms of how they faced their final moment. Now, they're also called, in, 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 in a certain sense, patriarchs. What is a patriarch? You might have heard the word. Uh, the patriarch is, is known in, in the dic- dictionary definition as the male head of a family or a tribe, the male leader of a people. And in the Old Testament, there were the four, like I said, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, it seems. The word patriarch comes from two Greek words, patria, which meant family, and arcane, which meant to rule. So the ruler of a family, the leader of a family. And the family, in this case, is the family known as Israel. These were the early leaders of the family that would become Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, their lives together spanned about 200 years from when God met Abraham, who was a pagan uh, worshiper of the moon god, who lived in a place called Ur, which is in modern-day southern Iraq. And the God of the Scripture made Abraham and called him to himself and gave him some promises, which we'll talk about in just a moment or two, and called him to go to a land that he'd never seen, known as the land of Canaan. And Abraham went by faith to do that. God had given him promises when when, when he was called, And Abraham went in search of the promises. So he traveled from Ur to Canaan, and there were other generations born. Isaac was one of his sons born to him. He was the son of promise that we learned about the last time we were in this text that was a miracle son and whom Abraham was actually willing to sacrifice on an altar if God told him to, and God gave him his son back by miracle. And so Isaac was born. Isaac lived and wandered the land of Canaan like Abraham did. They both lived in tents. They were never able to settle down and claim the land and claim the promise. Isaac had a son. He had a couple of sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was the chosen one in that, in that situation. And he lived and moved around Canaan, both in and out of the land for generations, never settled it. So the promise never came through for him. And finally, Jacob had 12 sons. The 11th of those was named Joseph. And Joseph was the noblest of those sons. And we have his history. And he had sons also. And they're all in the narrative here. The point I want to make is they all came from the same line, father to son, father to son, and so on. They stretch over 200 years of time. And they moved from Ur down in southern Iraq up to Canaan and wandered Canaan for 100 or 150 years. And then they all ended up, in Joseph's case, down in Egypt because of a famine in Canaan. And they were far out of the land that God had said he'd promised to them. What about the promises that were made? Well, when God first appeared to Abraham and called him out of of southern Iraq and called him to be a believer in the one and only God of the Scripture... God told Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you. It's known as the Abrahamic covenant. A covenant is an agreement. And by the way, 
the kinds of covenants that God makes can come true when he keeps his part and he blesses. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to come through for you and for your generations, and I'm going to promise three things. Here they are. First was the possession of a special land, the land of Canaan. God said, I'm going to give you that place. I'm going to give it to your descendants. Second, he promised that Abraham would have a descendant line, a line through his physical line. He would raise up a family that would carry on into further generations and it would become a great nation, nearly countless. And third, he said, through the seed of your line, one individual will arise who will become the savior of the world, the Messiah, and through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What a huge set of promises. What an honor for a man and what an honor for a people to be the people through whom the Messiah would come. Now, Abraham lived a long life. We see it in scripture and he never saw any one of those things come to pass. Wandered the land, was never able to settle there. Never really saw a large grouping of lives come out of his physical lineage. And there was nothing close to the glimmer of a Messiah appearing in anyone who came from him. He died, though, and in faith, and he must have told Isaac, his son, son, these are the promises. They didn't come true in my time, but I'm passing them on for you. Perhaps they will come true in your time. Son, remember the promises. And Isaac went on and lived many years after Abraham, but he too, as we see in this passage, died in faith and the promises had not come true in his generations either, but he still brought his son Jacob and he said, I bring the blessing of the promises onto you. Perhaps the promises will occur in your generation, but don't forget the promises, pass them on. God is good for his word. Well, Isaac lived and died in faith and then Jacob, his son came about. Isaac hadn't seen any of the promises in his life, but when he brings Jacob in, all of that is repeated, and you can see it in the narrative. Finally, Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, comes. Jacob never saw the promises, just like Isaac never saw the promises, just like Abraham's son never saw the promises, and Joseph lived to never see the promises. God was taking his eternal time. And Joseph dies in faith, this chapter says, and he passes on the promises and, and the, the, he passes on the promises to the generations that would follow him. His promise went all the way out 400 years to the people that would follow him and be in bondage in Egypt. And he says, even though you look farther from the promises than any generation, than Abraham, than Isaac, than, than Jacob, my own father, and then I myself, even after I'm God, the promises are going to be held back. And you're going to go through 400 years of slavery here in Egypt where you seem farther than the prom from the promises that any of us ever did. God is going to keep his promises and he's going to bring you out of Egypt and he's going to take you to that land. And I'm so certain of it that I want you to make sure my bones go with you. So here is mighty faith. Now, what about the promises today? Well, we've seen the fulfillment of all of them. They began to see the fulfillment after Joseph's time when Moses led the people of God in the Exodus out from Egypt and Joshua led them into the promised land, didn't he? So the promises did begin to be fulfilled in that generation, centuries after they were given. Did Israel become a great nation? Oh, yes. Multiplied there in Egypt and then multiplied afterward. God kept his promise. They became a great nation and they're a nation today. 
They're the only nation that has survived against all odds longer than any other people group in the history of the planet. 4,000 years and counting. And they're here today. And they're here in their land. Promises fulfilled. And did we see the arrival of a Messiah, a Savior in our in time and space? Absolutely. When Jesus Christ strode into history, the Son of David, and he became the Messiah who was crucified, who rose, and who's ascended to heaven, and he's now building his church. We're part of the fulfillment of all these promises. So God has been at work, but they had to wait in those days, and God, when it seemed God wasn't at work. So here is the primary perspective of these stories that I want to give you in this first portion of the message. These people never saw the promises of God fulfilled, but at death they still believed them for their children. They never saw the promises of God fulfilled, but they still believed. Abraham told Isaac, I'm dying, but you believe the promises. They'll come true, perhaps in your life. Isaac told Jacob, I'm dying, but you believe the promises. Maybe they'll come true in your life. Jacob, on dying, said to Joseph, I'm going to bless your sons. Maybe in their time, the promises will come true. And Joseph said, as, as he was dying, to the generations to follow, I don't see it even coming close, but I believe it's going to happen. Be ready when it does. They never saw it, but at death still believed it. And that's the reason the Bible puts them in this chapter. It's the reason the Bible commends them and says, by faith, by faith, by faith, each of them believed God into an uncertain future. So let me bring the point of application for us. Every one of us, if we're called to face physical death, in that death moment, we're called to believe God's promises or as it approaches in the life of some of these men. As we see death approaching for us or we're at its door, we're called to believe God's promises. In fact, that's when you have to believe them more than ever. Isn't that true? When when we're called to death... We have to believe God's going to be good for a number of things just on the other side of it. The first thing is we're going to have to believe he's good about heaven, about eternity, that this is not the only time the fire burns and, and, and the, 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 the experience of life we have. As I went through this chapter, I just said, I thank you, Lord, that this life is not everything. I thank you, Lord, that this life is not my only experience, because if it was, I would be greatly disappointed greatly grieved. It has not been a good life. And if you think this life is good in its essence, you still got a lot to learn. I just thank God through the week that he was showing me that eternity is the essence of ultimate reality. So when I die, I hope I have the presence of mind and the grace of God to say, God, I believe you're good for what happens after my last breath. And that is a next breath. We'll have to believe him about what, what would happen to those we leave behind? I'm going to be believing God for the fact that if my children survive me and my grandchildren survive me, even though times are difficult, I'm believing that some of them may not have to taste death. I believe many of them can be raptured because I think that's the next biblical event in history. I'm praying that my children and my grandchildren, if I go in physical death, they won't have to taste it, that we're, as, we're that close to the coming of Jesus. I'm praying for it. Church told you to pray for it. Scripture told you to pray for it. The Bible says to pray, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's not a slogan. That's a prayer. 
When you face death, you're also going to need to believe in the resurrection that this is not the only physical experience you'll ever have. This is not the only time I'll be physically alive once I die. I'll be very physically alive with a new resurrection body someday, a far better than this one, and a world far better than this one that's perfect and without end. I'm looking forward to more physical life, perfect physical life. I'm believing him for that as I approach death, if I do. I'm going to believe God for the restoration of all things. It's a miserable, sin-wracked, evil-dominated world, and it's only going to get worse. And I'm going to believe that as I approach death, God is going to do something about this. I won't live to see it physically here, but I'll live to see it eternally there. He's going to bring all things to himself. He's going to settle with sin. He's going to deal with rebellious men and women. He's going to deal with all the injustice and the wickedness of the world. He's going to deal with Satan and all of the, everything is going to be handled and restored to what God always wanted it to be. And I'm believing him for that. I probably won't see it in my life. I know, in fact, I certainly won't see it in my life. I'll either die or be raptured, and then we'll see it in eternity. I, actually, I also have to believe him, if I face death today, in his providence. I have to believe that those that I leave behind are in better hands than mine. If I were taken in death today, I'd have to believe in God's perfect providence to care for my children as I could never care for them, to care for my grandchildren, to care for my spouse, to care for the believers that I love and pray for all the time. I'm going to believe God for that. And you know what? If you face a death experience, you will need to believe God for every one of those things. I can tell you in advance, he's good for the promises. Fear not. He's good for all of it. So that's the the great encouragement I got from this story. Let me go now to just some quick, tight perspectives. What I would call the personal perspectives you can draw from each of these stories, from each of these lives. We're going to go through each one real quickly. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and we're going to talk about the man and then the meaning of their particular faith stand, because they all took a stand. Verse 20, Isaac, let's take a look at him, where the scripture says in Hebrews 11 and verse 20, that by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Let's take a look at it. Well, the man first, who was Isaac? Well, he was the miracle son of Abraham. We already have met him in scripture. The miracle son, the the son of promise through whom Messiah would come. And he became a father himself, married to his wife, Rebecca. Rebecca gave birth to fraternal twins. The firstborn, just by a few seconds, was Esau. The second, holding on to his heel, literally, coming into the world was Jacob. That's why they named him Jacob, heel grabber. Those two fought and contested all their lives. But God spoke to Rebekah when they were born, and he says, I'm not going to give my promises, and, and this Messiah is not going to come through the older one, which was social tradition. Social tradition was the oldest son receives the majority of the state, and he's the one through all the, all the blessings will come to and through whom they flow. So it surprised Rebekah, but she must have told Isaac as well that God had a different plan. When the time comes to bring the blessing, when you die, you put it on Jacob, not Esau. Well, Isaac resisted that through much of his life because Esau was his favorite. 
And Isaac just couldn't understand why God would want to do that. So Isaac, who was not a great man of faith until the end of his life, resisted it, came up with a plan to put a blessing on Esau as he felt his life was leaving him. As in his later days, Isaac was losing his eyesight, losing his strength, thought he was going to die. So he made a plan to, to put a blessing upon Esau. Well, Rebekah and Jacob got wind of the plan. They put their own wicked plan together. Nobody comes out of this looking good, by the way. This family put a capital D in the word dysfunction. But God still got it done. Because God overturned their plan and actually used their plan to fulfill his purpose. And old Jacob found out that he had put his hand of blessing upon, I'm sorry, old Isaac found out he he had put his hand upon Jacob after all, even though his plan was not to. He'd gotten fooled. Well, God was in the fooling. Jacob was switched in, the blessing was given, and the scripture says in, in Genesis 27, 33, the moment Isaac re- figured it out, it said he trembled greatly, not only because he realized he'd been caught, but he realized God was here. And God was overruling, and God was having his will. And Isaac, then at that moment, is verse 20, where he, he invoked a future blessing on Jacob. And the scripture says, when, when, when Esau came and says, but I thought I had the blessing. no. Isaac says, no, it's, it is clear. God wanted Jacob to have the blessing. And the scripture says, yes, and he shall be blessed. So he received the promises. He was the one to carry on the great promises of God. It's amazing. When God wants to get it done, he gets it done. Even when it looks like everything ain't getting done, he's getting it done. Remember that. So what's the meaning of this? Well, I take the meaning from my life was that Isaac was faced with what I would call an unwanted future, an unwanted future. He didn't want this all of his life. But when it became clear that God's will was different, Isaac showed his faith by accepting it. When he was faced with an unwanted future, his response was, I'll accept it, Lord. And that's why he's in the hall of faith for that one moment. When he said, let the will of God be done. That's great faith. Let me ask you, has God made very clear that there is a certain thing or things about your future that are going to happen or have happened and that are unwanted? You lived all your life not wanting it to happen. Perhaps the end of a relationship that's changed your future, the end of a marriage or a relationship. And you're single in a way you never thought you'd be. Perhaps an illness that's come into your life that of course you never would have wanted. And in fact, you couldn't even have imagined it. But it's now a part of your future. A change in your professional life that of course you wouldn't want. But it's come. An unwanted future. What is God calling you to do? Say, oh, I'll accept it, Lord. Isaac's story. How about Jacob? Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Here's Jacob blessing two people, but the primary blessing was on one. Who was Jacob? Let's talk about the man and then the meaning. 
Well, he was a son of Isaac. We already know his story. He got the blessing that God wanted him to get. Now, he had a very up and down life in faith, just like his father Isaac. He was very weak much of the time, but he was bold some of the time. Yet he grew in his faith over his life so that in the last years of his life, he was a great man of God. He had great faith. He lived and sojourned, traveled all around Canaan, and then a famine came to the land. So he never settled the land either, never got the promise. He ended up driven, driven by the famine down to Egypt, where his whole family was miraculously saved by his son Joseph, who had been betrayed generations earlier and abandoned by his brothers, and who ended up in Egypt. God had all planned it out in advance. So Joseph was there to save his family from famine and to protect them. So the whole story is played out in Genesis. So Jacob gets to the end of his life, it says in verse 21, and he knows he's dying. His eyesight was also frail. He could hardly see a thing. He was lying on his deathbed, and he asked for Joseph to come and bring his sons to get a blessing. Why didn't the older one get it in that case? His name was Simeon. He should have got the blessing. He had disgraced himself through mighty sin, and God wouldn't bless someone in that way. And so the noblest of the sons, Joseph, received this blessing. And Joseph was commanded by Jacob to bring his two sons. Now, Joseph had two sons. Manasseh was the oldest. Ephraim was the next oldest. Joseph naturally assumed, well, I'm going to bring my sons into to, to Jacob's deathbed. And of course, Jacob will bless the oldest because that's the way it's always done. Well, God had another surprise. Old Jacob leaned up on one arm and maybe sat on the side of the bed there, leaning on his staff couldn't see a thing. Joseph brings in the two sons whom it appears Jacob had not met. And Joseph, just to make sure that his blind father sees the oldest one and knows who to bless, he moves Manasseh by the right hand of Jacob. So Jacob will know who to put his hand and blessing on. But at the last moment, you remember the story, what happens? What does, what does Jacob do? He crosses his hands. And he puts the blessing on the younger one, not the older one. And Joseph can't believe it. He says, no, my father, you've got it all wrong. And, 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 And Jacob says, no, my son, I've got it all right. God has spoken. How do we know that Jacob knew to do this? We simply assume that God must have spoken to him at some time and said, no, the older is not going to get the blessing. Ephraim, not Manasseh, is going to get the blessing. And, and, and old Jacob must have said, Lord, I don't understand. This is unexpected but I'll believe you for it. I'll obey. I'll obey. So there it was. God must have simply and unexpectedly told him that this is the way he wanted it. So here's the meaning for us. That is, some of us may expect or experience an unexpected future. Isaac had an unwanted future. Some of us, like Jacob, may have an unexpected future that God suddenly says, this is the way it's going to be. And what we have to do is respond like Jacob did. Jacob worshiped and obeyed God. Unexpected future, he said, oh Lord, I'll obey you. Don't understand it. Never expected this this curveball. Let me ask you, has God brought certain things into your future that were unexpected? I think we're all kind of moving into a future in some ways unexpected. But think about your personal circle of family, the the people you leave behind like these guys were. Has God brought into your life suddenly 
in a child or a grandchild a sudden departure from the faith or a sudden decision about how they're handling their life that is a total shock to you. You, you, you were an example. You raised them in the truth. They were involved in the truth in an environment like this, and they've professed faith. And now you see this sudden, unexpected change away from Christ. What are you doing about that? Are you living in bitterness over it or confusion over it? Well, why don't you just do what Jacob says, Lord, I'm going to worship you in it, and I'm going to obey you. I thought I'd have a life where my child would bless me with their faith. It looks like I'm going to have a future where I'm still called to pray for them and to labor for them in the hope that they'll be brought to the safe harbor of Jesus. Will you do that? An unexpected future where we say, oh Lord, I'll just simply worship and obey. What about Joseph? The man, who was he? Well, we know that he was one of Jacob's sons. He was the 11th of 12. This is another generation that never saw the promises happen. And it's another end-of-life story. It says, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, verse 22, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. No promises had come to Joseph either. In fact, he was the farthest from it. He'd never even been able to set foot in Canaan, I, I don't think. He'd lived most of his life in Egypt. He was famous in Egypt, but he was spiritually homeless. His heart wasn't in Egypt. He'd wanted to be in the promised land. And he wanted to be a part of his people, not famous in Egypt. But here was the plan of God. He was further off than ever. It had been 200 years since Genesis 15, and God made the promises to Abraham, and nothing looked close. It looked farther away than ever. They were a dependent people in Egypt, dependent on the kindness of the Pharaoh, Joseph knew that God had also told, told Abraham 200 years before that, that the people would stay in Egypt and we would come under bondage in Egypt and everything would change. And they would go through 400 years of bondage before things would change. So you want to talk about being distant from the promises of God. Joseph in his human spirit must have been tempted to say, surely these promises will never be fulfilled. They're done. Time is taking them out. And yet, nevertheless, it says that when he gathered his brothers around him, when he was facing death, he said, listen, don't forget the promises. Believe God for the promises. Even though I'm dying and I've never seen him, you don't forget God's faithfulness. He's going to come. You're going to head into centuries of bondage, but I'm believing God. He has a land for you as a people. And even though I won't be here and generations of us won't be here and our great, great grandkids will be here, you tell them that God is going to keep his word. He's going to take you out of bondage. He's going to take you out of Egypt and he's going to take you to Canaan. And I'm so certain of it that you take my bones and you put them in a casket, but don't you put them in a tomb. The scripture says that when Joseph, in Genesis 50, when Joseph died, they put his bones in a, in a, in a casket, a coffin, but it doesn't say they put him in one of the tombs of the pharaohs or the great ones. His bones were above ground and they were looked upon by every generation of Israelites. They were honored. And then 400 years later, when the Exodus happened in Genesis, pardon me, in Exodus 13, 19, it says that as as Israel was leaving Egypt, as Moses was taking them out, heading across the Red Sea to the promised land, Moses gave directions to take the bones of Joseph with him. 
And they took those bones, and in the end, end part of the book of Joshua, after they'd gone into the land and the promise of the land was fulfilled, Joshua buried the bones of Joseph just as Joseph has said. He buried him in a place called Shechem, where you can visit that tomb, or what they say is the place of it, to this day. Wow. Joseph, what? He was a man perhaps of greater faith than them all because his faith had to telescope over time. Oh, and he did it well. What's the meaning of his faith, Stan? Well, Joseph faced an uncertain future. Isaac faced the unwanted future regarding his sons. Jacob faced the, the surprising and, and uh, kind of a unexpected future. Joseph faced the most daunting one, and that was an uncertain one, separated by centuries of time and bondage and hopelessness. So what did he do when God showed him how uncertain things looked? He simply said, Lord, I'll believe. I'll believe you to the end of my days, and I'll tell my brothers to believe you, and I'll tell my children to believe you, and I'll tell them to tell every generation to believe you until you come through. Let me ask you, has God brought you into a future that's uncertain? Beloved, may I say to you that we may be entering into a generation that's uncertain regarding God's people. More uncertain now than even a short time ago. God is still on the throne. God's promises are still written in eternal stone. God's presence is still with his people as we prayed this morning. And God's perfect plan will not be opposed and defeated. It simply cannot happen. Now, we look to generations ahead, and we don't know what the uncertainties of our generation mean about the gospel and the church, but we can know that God is all over it. Those are the stories of men that faced the future with simple faith. I was thinking that nobody, none, of, none of us knows how we will face death or handle it. We, we don't know, and... I, I pray for the grace to walk, and, and I believe in, in God's grace that will come. I know he'll give me grace if, if I have to face it, if he doesn't come for me. But what the scripture does here is it shows us how we can. None of us knows how we will in our own frailty, but here are three demonstrations of how we can face death and how we can face the future that will occur without us. And don't forget that two of these three men who were commended for great faith were more failures than faithful in their life. Only one was re remarkable, and that was Joseph. But it seems they were given grace in their moment to accept, to obey, and to believe. If our time comes, we ought to be asking for that. For that grace to accept and to obey and believe the future that those that follow us will live into. I want to be like Jacob, 
where it says in verse 22, at the end of his life, having given the blessing and seen it all far by faith, he bowed in worship. What did he do in that moment? He was worshiping God and thanking him and remembering all the ways in the past where God had been faithful. And he was bowing in intercessory prayer and asking God for all the ways in the future where he will have to be faithful. And he was saying, perhaps in silent adoration, Oh Lord, I know you will keep your promises. 